So a couple of weeks ago, um, I was in the, the gym locker room, and I usually keep my head towards the floor, because some guys... <laughs> but my ears in the air, and I heard a discussion on the other side of the um, the wall between two gentlemen, um, and the the one was saying to the other, talking of his um, his son and daughter in law, that they had become born again Christians. And what I could uh, gather from um, from this guy's speech is that he was Jewish, uh, and that their family had was Jewish, and that his uh, whether it was his daughter or son had converted, and they were now born again Christians. And the discussion between the two men. Um, was was concerning the difference between Judaism and Christianity, and um, the you could obviously tell that this father had been witnessed to by um, this young couple, and so he said that to the other he said it seems to me that the big difference between Judaism and Christianity is he said that uh, Judaism is more a, a way of life. Uh, a holy life, living pursuit to live a holy life, whereas a Christian uh, or Christianity is more faith-based. He said, wherein um, you know your 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 right position before God is based upon your faith uh, rather than on your lifestyle, and and that kind of then the conversation kind of shifted from there. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Uh, you know, he's he's partially on the right path in terms of of understanding. He's just not seeing that he's wrong. <laughs> you know, in that uh, you know that if you if you were to, to really analyze Judaism. Um, Judaism is completely faith. When you look at Abraham, when you look at uh, Daniel, you look at David, and you look at the righteousness that they possessed, it was a righteousness that was um, completely by faith. But uh, but it was an interesting uh, observation that the man made, wherein what he said was, if you boil it down, he said, uh, Judaism is holiness in a way of life or lifestyle, whereas Christianity is more faith based. And he, that, that was his analysis of the two things. And so as we would look at those, that analysis and we would agree with it, the question would arise in us, it would be, well, where is the line between faith and holiness? Because we know that it isn't just faith, neglecting and leaving aside a holy lifestyle, and we know that we're not saved by living a holy lifestyle void of faith. We know that the two things have come together. And so where is that line and how does that, look, how does that work? We know that in the book of James, in chapter 2, James says that faith without works is dead. And he says that you show me your works without faith and I'll show you my faith by my works. And then he gives some Old Testament examples of Abraham and Rahab and how their faith was proved by their works. And so there is a place where the two things meet together. The psalmist declared, and I can't remember what number psalm it is, but he says that righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And that's an amazing thing if you think about it, because righteousness is right living, right behaving, a right standing before God. And peace is having a settledness on the inside. And those two things in, in, in the human life, in a fallen human world, are almost impossible to reconcile. Because when I try to live a righteous life, 
I'm consistently plagued and anxious about the fact that my life doesn't line up with the righteousness that I desire. And so if I want to be righteous, oftentimes it's at the expense of peace because my righteousness doesn't measure up to the righteousness I, 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 I believe in or profess. So how can righteousness and peace kiss each other? Well, we know it happens in the person of Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, the righteousness of the law is satisfied in me, and thus I have peace with God, and righteousness and peace have kissed each other. But in the practical, daily life of a Christian, where is righteousness? What does it look like? I have faith. Is it enough for me to just say, well, I believe, and therefore I'm saved? Or is there more to it? Where do righteousness and the practical things and Christianity and faith meet together? And so we come to Romans chapter 7. And what we recognize is that grace and faith does not mean lawless behavior, right? And it also does not mean hypocritical, pharisaical behavior. So, I'm not called to say, well, I don't need to be holy because Jesus did all that and so I can live how I want. I'm saved by grace. And I'm also not called to pretend to be something I'm not. And so how does that work? What does that look like? And so the answer is given to us here in chapter 7, and I love it. It says in the beginning, verse 1, it says, Know ye not, brethren... For I speak to them that know the law. And so there's a little qualifier here on what he's about to say. And he's saying, I want you to, to understand something about the law as a context for what I'm about to explain to you. And so what do we know about the law? He says, I speak to those that know the law. Well, we were told back in chapter 3, verse 20, that by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So what does the law do? The law, first of all, it tells me that God is holy, right? If I know the law, then I know that God is holy. If this is what God requires of a human life, then this must be what God is, who God is. God is holy. And so therefore, the law tells me that God requires holiness, that God is holy and that he therefore requires holiness. But the law also proves to me that I am unholy because every time I try to keep it, I find that I miserably fail. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, again, a passage that we've already looked at. It says that the law entered that sin might abound. In other words, God gave the law to reveal the sinfulness of myself. Because without the law, I wouldn't ever know that I was a sinner. I would just think that I was fine and there's a problem somewhere else. But the law reveals that I'm a sinner. And then in 614, the passage that we looked at the last time we were together concerning the law, he says that sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under law, but under grace. I want you to think about that for just a minute. He says that we, as Christians, are no longer under the covenant of the law, and because of that, sin shall no longer have dominion over us. So if you put all of that together, 
what, what do we realize? We realize that under the law, or that sin, the sin and the law are inseparable. The law reveals sin. If I'm under the law, it's just a proof of my sinfulness. And so if I am no longer in sin because of Christ, then I also am no longer under the law. The two things are inseparable. And so we understand these things about the law, that the law is the righteous requirement of God. We also understand concerning the law that none of us are able to keep it, that it simply reveals our sinfulness. And we also know that in Christ, we are no longer under the covenant of the law. Those things have been established thus far. And so this holy life that I'm called into now is never going to be the byproduct of my ability to keep the law because I cannot keep the law. And that's what he's about to explain to us in, in much clarity. And so chapter 7 is going to answer two questions for us. The first is, am I under the law and therefore held accountable to it? Which we already know the answer, but he's going to explain the, the nuts and bolts of it. So am I under the law and accountable to it? And then number two, if I'm not, then where does practical righteousness come from? If I'm not under the law, then where does a holy life come from? And he's going to answer that question as well. Probably one of the most valuable questions that can be answered for the Christian. And so he makes a declaration concerning the law in the second half of verse 1. He says, I speak to them that know the law. Don't you know how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? So there's a declaration that he makes right there. The declaration is that as long as a man is alive, he is inseparably held accountable to the law. The law has dominion, rulership, over a man's life as long as that man is alive. It's a marriage. That's the marriage. And that's the illustration that he gives in verse 2. Notice. He says, For the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband is dead, then she is loosed from the law of her husband. So just like when a man makes a pledge to a woman that the two are going to be married, and that it's till death do us part, so also Paul says that a man born into the world is under the law, and he's married to the law as long as he's alive. He cannot be set free and separated from the law until one of those two things dies. Now, there's a problem there. Here's the problem. Is that the law cannot die. Because the law is perfect. Psalm 19, verse 8. The psalmist declares, the law of the Lord is what? It's perfect. Converting the soul. Jesus said that not one jot or tittle from, will pass from the law until all things be fulfilled. And so the law is not going anywhere because the law is absolutely perfect. I heard an illustration one time about a, a, a woman who was married to a man whose name was Mr. Perfect. And the man was absolutely perfect in every way. He was perfect looking. His body was the perfect proportions. He had the perfect hair. Everything about the man was perfect. His breath was always perfect. He woke up in the morning. He rolled out of bed. Perfect. 
He always scored perfect on every test. He always did everything perfectly every time. Every meal he cooked was perfect. The house was kept in perfect condition. There was absolutely no flaw in this man at all whatsoever. And the woman on wedding day, she thought, wow, I married Mr. Perfect. This is the most amazing thing ever. Until about a week into the marriage. And when she found that being married to Mr. Perfect wasn't so incredible after all. Because when you're married to someone who's absolutely perfect, what it does is it highlights your flaws very much. And so she would wake up in the morning and would be embarrassed about the fact that her breath wasn't as fresh and minty as Mr. Perfect's was. When he came home from work and the house was not perfectly kept, his eye would immediately turn to the thing that was out of place. And the fact that she wasn't perfect. And soon the burden of her imperfection became so great that living in a marriage with Mr. Perfect became unbearable. And she decided, I've got to kill him. (laughs) And so she poisoned his food, but she found that his kidney was perfect. (laughs) And that the poisoned food couldn't kill Mr. Perfect because he was, in fact, perfect. He was totally perfect in every way. And so she decided that the only recourse at this point, not willing to live under the conditions of perfection and not able to eliminate Mr. Perfect, she decided that the only recourse was to take her own life. And thus the only way out of the marriage was that she would die. Now notice what Paul says here concerning the law. He says in verse 3, So then, if while her husband lives... She be married to another, she would be called an adulteress, but listen, but if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she be married to another man. Problem is, the law doesn't die. So notice verse three, or verse four, rather. Wherefore, my brethren, watch this, you also are become dead to the law. Do you see it? See, the law ain't going anywhere. The law of the Lord is perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. But in order for you and I to be separated from the law, we have to die because every man is born into this world under dominion, bondage to the law. We must die in order to be set free from the law. And what Paul is declaring here is that we have become dead to the law by the body of Christ. When Jesus hung on the cross and died, the sinless one paying the price for sin on a murderer's cross. When he rose from the dead, he now gives the invitation to whosoever will to come to him. And when a man responds to the call of the gospel and receives Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, the payment for our sins... That man is dead. He is crucified with Christ upon the cross. And the life that he lives on the other side of that conversion is now a resurrected life. The life of Christ living in me. And because of that, I am now set free from the law. I have been divorced from it. Not through divorce, but through death. I've died. 
And so I become dead to the law by the body of Christ that you should be married to another, who's that, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit now unto God. And so there's a reason and a purpose behind our conversion, the fruit that we'll bring forth, which we'll get into in a little while. And then he says in verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, prior to our death, prior to separating from the law, the motions of sins, that is the actions, the deeds of our sinful fallen nature, which were by the law, the law was what revealed and labeled those things as sinful, did work in our members, our body parts, to bring forth fruit unto death. Now, how did our flesh, prior to our conversion, how did our fleshly nature bring forth sinful fruit unto death? How did that happen? It happened all by itself, didn't it? Did you have to try? Did anyone have to teach you how to be a sinner? Did anyone have to pull you aside and say, you know what, you're living quite a righteous life, and you obviously need to be corrupted? And so let me just explain to you a couple of things about what you can do in this fallen body, in this fallen world. No, you didn't have to do any of that. It was just instinctive. I was talking to someone this week who was not yet a believer. It was a very interesting conversation with someone who uh, finds themselves in a little bit of a net, a little bit of a trap, and is being pulled in by a particular sin and being in, and kind of sees the writing on the wall and has yet to go through the motions of the sin that will leave their life in a heap of ruins. And what I said to this person in, in sharing with them is I said, well, the only solution that I know of for you right now is that you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can, can pull, pull you out of what you're into right now. And I said, most people, and I'm just telling you not to fill you with you know, fear, but most people don't realize that until they're standing beside the heap of ruins that you're still standing in front of, <laughs> you know. And I say, you could avoid it, but <laughs> we'll see what, what happens, you know. But that heap of ruins that I'm talking about, I think all of us are very familiar with it, right? I know what my life looked like when I came to Jesus Christ. Everything that I had touched my finger to had become a heap of ruins, and I could see the writing on the wall that there was a whole lot of ruins in front of me if I didn't do something about it, if something didn't change. And so Paul says, the motions of sins which were by the flesh did work in our flesh to bring forth fruit unto death, and it happened all by itself. It was our nature. It was just human nature. But now, in contrast to that, verse 6, he says, we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held, we should serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Because we've been set free from the law and because we're now in Jesus Christ, we no longer are slaves to the law of sin and death and we're now freed to serve in what he calls here the newness of the spirit. In that now there can be fruit, living fruit, that can be produced in our life because of what we have in Jesus Christ now in this new thing that he's calling the Spirit. Not the law, but the Spirit. It's the first time this concept of serving in the Spirit is introduced. He's going to get into it in depth in Romans chapter 8, where we get into next. 
But how does this work? How does fruit in our life come out of this new position that we're in now that we're in Christ and we're no longer set free from the law? Notice what he gives. He's going to explain what the law does. What does the law do? And he's doing this for contrast purposes. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? If it's the law that magnified my sinfulness, then does that make the law a negative thing, a bad thing? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion, grabbing a hold of an opportunity, by the commandment, wrought or worked in me all manner of concupiscence, means lust or evil desire. For without the law, sin was dead. Now, this is an amazing, insightful passage concerning the Apostle Paul. It's very autobiographical. Because what he's basically saying to us right here is that the, the, the part of the law that nailed him was the 10th commandment, which was thou shalt not covet or thou shalt not lust. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives a testimony of his life before Christ. He says that he was a Jew, that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He had his papers to prove that he was legit. That he was a Pharisee, and not just a Pharisee, an exclusive one, but he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, meaning that he was a leader in the sect of an already elite group of religious people. He says, concerning the righteousness which was in the law, he was blameless. No one could look at his life and find any area where there was any flaw or violation to the law. And he lived his life under this banner that he was serving God, that he was pleasing God. He was a student, we're told in another part of, of the New Testament, under Gamaliel, who was one of the chief uh, authorities and rabbis of the day. He was well taught in the Bible. He was a student, a theologian, a Pharisee. And he would take the law point by point, and he would measure his own life up against it. No other gods? No other gods. No idols? No idols. Keeping holy the Sabbath? Blamelessly. Honoring my parents? Not stealing anything that doesn't belong to me? Never murdered or killed anyone? Just going through point by point by point. Not a thief, and he's blameless. Then he comes to the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's ox, your neighbor's ass, your neighbor's wife, or anything else that is your neighbor's. You shall not lust for something that you don't have. And something happened inside Paul the Apostle, who was at that time Saul of Tarsus, when he meditated on those words. Is that he thought, okay, stealing is a physical act, what I do with my hands. Honoring my parents is something that, you know, I do with my life, with my obedience and, you know, with, with my service towards them and respect and all. Murder is something that I do with my hands. But what is coveting? What does it mean to lust? I mean, when you lust for something, you're not grabbing a hold of something. You're not punching someone in the face. You're not. It's, lusting is, is in my thought life. Lusting is in my heart. Wanting, desiring something, that's an unseen thing. I could be breaking that commandment and no human being would ever know it because there's no physical manifestation 
of what that command means and does. What that means is that God doesn't just see the actions and what man sees, but that God can see beyond the shell of what man sees, and God can see on the inside into what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I'm desiring in my heart. And that God's law doesn't just judge my behavior outwardly, God's law judges what I am and who I am inwardly. And if God can see my thoughts and my feelings and my desires then that makes me accountable to the law on a whole new level. Because that means I can be breaking the other nine commandments even though I've never done the action. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Which means I'm an idolater. Which means I've dishonored my parents. Which means I've murdered. Acts 9.1 Saul was yet breathing out murder. Isn't that amazing? It says that in Acts 9.1. Paul was yet breathing out murder and threatenings against the disciples of the Lord. He was a murderer. And he said, when I read the words, thou shalt not covet, I became guilty. My blameless, pharisaical, paper-validated Judaism became scrap. When my heart was exposed before the law of God, when it said, thou shalt not covet. And when the law said, don't lust, sin revived. That's what happens. He says that in verse 9 of Romans 7 here. He says, for I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The law exposed my flaw, my iniquity. And the commandment, the law, which was ordained unto life, I found unto death. What did Moses say when the law was given in the book of Deuteronomy? By the mouth of God, he said, do this and you will live. This is the prescription for life. Keep the law and you will live. It was ordained unto life. But he says, what was ordained unto life, I found to be death because it woke Awoke, revived my sin, and I died. For sin, he says in verse 11, taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. Now, it's amazing what the law does, isn't it? What does the law do? The law awakens sin, right? I mean, what happens in your heart and in your mind when you see a sign that says, keep off the grass? You say, what's so special about that grass? My tax dollars pay for that grass. My tax dollars pay for that grass. That's my grass. I'll walk on that grass if I want to walk on it. Now, in a million years, I never would have probably walked on that grass. But as soon as I see that sign that says, keep off the grass, guess where I want to walk? Driving down Titusville Road. You come near those curves, and there's a big yellow sign that says, 30 miles an hour. Curve. So, oh, yeah. But I could take it at 40. (laughs) Now, in my car, it's not 30. (laughs) In my car, it's 40. You can take that turn, you know. Why? I never in a million years would have taken... Well, that's not true. (laughs) Do you understand what the law does? If I tell you, listen, whatever you do, whatever you do right now, 
do not think about the Buffalo Bills winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> Don't think about the Buffalo Bills winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> now, once I say that, it's almost impossible for you not to do it. When sin is present in a human life, when you add the law to that sinful tendency, it revives the sin, the sin is strengthened, and our weakness is exposed. The law reveals that we are sinners. That's what it does. And as long as we are under the law, it is impossible for us to be free from sin. Because we're in sinful bodies. And until we're set free from them in heaven, new bodies, without sin, then the law is always going to produce sin. That's why legalism is so harmful. Because what legalism does is it forces, first of all, it, it revives and strengthens sin because the law brings out sin. But now because I have to live according to this standard that, that's been set up, now I have to hide it and I have to be a hypocrite. And so legalism now brings forth hypocrisy in my life. Sin revived, it took occasion by the commandment, it deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, he says, verse 12, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good, the law, made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, the law, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know, and this is what the law brings out, verse 14, that the law is spiritual. The law is good. Is there anything wrong with the law? Anything wrong with the law? It's better to give than to receive. Is there anything wrong with that? Don't commit adultery. Anything wrong with that? Don't steal. Don't take something that's not yours. Anything wrong? With, no, no. The, the law is good. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Carnal means fleshly. And in my fleshly fallen state, I am in a sinful state. Sin resides in me. And so the law exposes and reveals that sin. It brings me to that place. And then he talks now about the struggle that that sin produces when it's sought to be rectified by the law. Verse 15. We all know this struggle. I hope you do. He says, For that which I do, my behavior, the things that I actually do, I allow not. I forbid myself to do the things that I find myself actually doing. For the things that I would, the things that I want to do, that I don't do. But what I hate that I do. Anybody can relate to that? Anybody ever been on a diet? <laughs> Two days. <laughs> right. That which I want to do, I don't do. And that which I don't want to do, I do. If then I do what I would not, then I consent unto the law that it is good. When I break the standard that I have set up for myself, I'm already admitting that the standard is better than my behavior. I'm consenting that the law is good. It's better than me. Now then, it is no longer I that do it. That is my will. It's not my will. But it's sin that dwells in me. It's the fact that I'm a sinner. Sin is weakening my will. It's breaking down my will force, my ability to keep the standard that I agree with. 
For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Do you guys see that? Mark, just look at your Bible and look at those words. Look where they are on the page in the book of Romans. If you have a marker, a highlighter, highlight those words. Stare at them for a minute. And let the truth of those words sink into your mind and into your heart. This is Paul the Apostle. And he's saying to us concerning himself, he says, in me. That is, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Now, this is a struggle, isn't it? I struggle with this. Because God already is telling me that in me dwells no good thing. But yet, how do I feel about myself when I fail? I'm forgetting this fact, isn't it? God didn't forget it. He knows it. But in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. We're sinful. In our fallen state. For to will is present with me. To want to do what's right is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. Now, this is one of the most amazing passages, sentences, phrases, breaths in the entire New Testament concept. Do you see that little word how there in verse 18? That's the key. Notice, he says to will, to want, is present. But how, I find not. See, here's the key. Listen, guys. The law tells me what. The law tells me the what of God's will and of God's word. What do you require of me, Lord? The law tells me the answer to that. What is a holy life? What is a life of purity and cleanliness? What is a life free of covetousness and lust and desire for things that I shouldn't have? What is a life of service and dedication to the Lord selflessly? That's the what. Now, none of us have any problem with the what. We know what God wants of our lives. The problem is that the what does not produce the how. Knowing what God's will is for my life does not empower me to keep God's will for my life. The law can tell me what, but it cannot give me the power and the force to do what it is that God is asking of me or requiring of me. To will is present with me, but how to perform it, I find not. Every one of us in here knows what God wants from us. Our problem isn't knowing what. Our problem is that we can't do it. Is we don't have the how. For the good, verse 19, that I would, the good that I want to do, and I want to do, who in here doesn't want to do God's will? I want to do God's will. I want to live pleasing in his sight. I want to be what he made me to be and what he's called me to be. I want to be free, free from sin and free from the defilement of my flesh. That's what I want. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil that I would not, that I do. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I, that is my will, that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that 
when I would do good, when I want to do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law at work in my members, my flesh, my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity or slavery to the law of sin, which is in my body. I want to do good, but the sin that lives in me is too powerful and it overrules my desire and it brings me into captivity to the sinful behavior that I hate. That's what Paul's saying here. Here's the, the conclusion of it. Verse 24. The frustration in the flesh and yet the answer. Here it is, guys. Oh, wretched man that I am. In the Greek, it's, oh, wretched man, me. Oh, wretched man that I am. Ready? Who? shall deliver me from this body of death. Do you guys see that little three-letter word there? Listen, it's not a what. It's not a how. It's a who that can deliver us from the sinful tendencies that are in us. See, my thing is that I want a set of rules in the New Testament. That's what I want. I don't want to be under the law, okay? I know the law is impossible. I'm well-trained, you know? But I want a set of precepts. I want a set of guidelines. I want a 12-step or, or a two-step or a three-step. If you just do this, spend 20 minutes a day reading the Bible, and you'll stop sinning. Spend 20 minutes a day praying to the Lord and you'll find victory over your temptations and over your sinfulness. Get rid of the things in your life that tempt you and set up barriers and walls. Now there's wisdom in all of that and they, you know all those things have their place. But how many of us have made our list of things, put it on our refrigerator or on our bedroom wall or committed our things to memory and they have helped us for a week or two or a month or maybe even a year but we find ourselves going back into the slavery that we had thought we were set free from. Why? Because there is no how. There is no way. There's no precept. We don't need another sermon that's going to give to us the key and the answer because the answer isn't there. The key isn't in the sermon. We don't need another bestseller on the Christian list of the top 20, that this is really how you'll have victory in your life. We don't need another speaker or another teacher or another teaching because none of those things are ultimately going to bring us into the kind of life that God is telling us that we are to live and that we can live. It's not a what. It's not a precept. It's a person. It's a who. We should no longer serve in the letter, but in the newness of the spirit, he said back a few verses ago. What does that mean? It means that now, because of Jesus Christ and my identification with him, 
It isn't now, okay, you have been given a relationship with God, a clean slate, forgiveness of sins. Now roll up your sleeves in this new cleanliness that you have and go do better. No, no. It's Christ now comes in me. And in me, from in me, he now lives out the life that he has called me to live and what he's called me to be. One of the things that I've always loved and admired in someone is someone who can write music. I can sing and I can play, but I cannot write music. I've tried. And you know the difference between someone who can write music and someone who's trying to write music. You know, like just totally different things, you know. And so I could go and I could find someone who can really write music. And I could say to that person, I could say, hey, could you please teach me how to write music? And they could tell me what they do and they could their motions and their method and the way that they go down through it. And I could look at that person's life and I could say, well, they play this kind of instrument. They studied at this school or, you know, this is, they practice this many hours a day. And, and, and I could do everything they do. I could dress like them. I could get the same haircut and the same hairstyle. I could listen to the same things. I could do every single thing that that person does. But after all is said and done, do you know what you're going to have? You're going to have a composer and you're going to have a poser. <laughs> because the best that I'll ever be able to do is imitate what I see in that person. Unless that person could get inside of me and they could compose music through me because they possess something that I do not possess and that I could never possess no matter how much education or imitation I give myself to. And so it is in the Christian life. If I just study Jesus Christ... Of the imitation of Christ. What would Jesus do? And I put a bracelet on my wrist. And every decision I make, every time I am in a situation, I'm going to ask myself that question, what would Jesus do? And then I'm going to just do what Jesus would do in that situation. It's imitation. I'm going to study him. And I'm going to learn every little thing I can about Jesus. And I am going to be like Jesus. He's my role model. I'm a poser. I'm trying to imitate something that I see, but it's not something that's in me. Jesus said it is expedient, absolutely necessary that I go to the Father. What? No, 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 no. Lord, it's expedient that you stay right here. No, no. If I don't go to the Father, then the Spirit won't come. But if I go, I will send him unto you. I will give you another helper. What does that mean? He's inside. He wants to live inside of us. It's not a how. It's not a precept. It's a he. It's a who. It's him. It's him living inside of us. And from there, he now lives out the life in me. You say, okay, yeah, okay. Well, what do I do then? No, 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 you're missing it. It's not a what. I know for me personally, okay, I'm a man just like you. I have a sinful fallen nature just like all of you, just like everybody else. And I have the tendency and the ability to fall into any sin that I'm subject to fall into temptation to 
even right now, 20 years walking with the Lord, there's nothing that's above me or below me when it, when it comes to sin. I, I am a sinner through and through and through. And I have done the roller coaster of making promises and pledges. I have asked the question, what would Jesus do? I have made my lists and put them on the fridge. I have spent my time in prayer in the word. And you know what I find on the other side of it all? Is that I am just as much a sinner today and as much prone to wander today as at any other time or any other time in the future. You say, well, that's hopeful. No, it is hopeful. (laughs) You say, is there no victory? No, there is victory. Do you know where it is? It's in his presence. It's in him. When I spend time with him, when I spend time in communion with him, again, not preset, not, okay, Lord, I'm giving you your 15 minutes, but when I allow his spirit to fill my life, when I live in communion with him, according to the privilege and power of the new covenant, the spirit of God living in me, It's then that the life of God is imparted into me and I do by nature then the things that he would require and desire of me. Not by effort and strain. Just like he said back in verse 5 when he said, when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin brought forth fruit unto death. How did it happen? It happened naturally because that's what I was. I was fallen man. And thus, when I'm being filled with his spirit, when I'm being satisfied in him, when I'm enjoying the relationship that I've been called into with Christ, then just as naturally as a baby forms in the womb, so the the nature of Christ forms and comes out of my life. When I put him aside, "Ah, Lord, I don't really need you. I don't need you in my mind. I don't need your spirit in my life. And so I'm just going to, push forward and forge ahead, then I find temptations, irritabilities, the motions of sins, the weaknesses of my old man, those things begin to revive and come back. But in him, in his presence, in his nearness, it happens automatically. When I'm in it, you guys know, in the spirit, right? Like, you're you're close. Not works, it's not church, it's him. Lord, this is right. We're communing. We're talking. We're fellowshipping. You're filling my life. Things are the way they should be. They're set right. It just, it happens. Not a precept, a person. It's in the relationship. It's hard to even communicate it because as soon as you start to try to communicate it, it's precepts again. Okay, well, I do this. I pray. It, It is that, but it isn't that. And it is. It's relationship. It's what we've been called into. That's the glory of this new covenant thing that we have been called into. My, my favorite account, and I, forgive me for being redundant, is the woman at the well. She brought a bucket to have it filled, right? And she left the bucket at the well. She forgot that she was thirsty. Her thirst was not important anymore. What bucket? Where's the bucket? You went to go bring, where is it? Oh, I I left it at the well. But let me tell you about a man who told me everything I ever did. 
And she brought a whole village to Jesus. She came with a desire. She came empty. She came seeking satisfaction. She left forgetting that she even had a need. And the difference was a person. It was interacting with Jesus Christ. That's where the victory came. And when she went back into the village, she didn't say, come and hear a teacher who gave me greater insights than any person ever has. Come and hear a counselor who knew how to get underneath my issues and deal with the things that needed to be uncovered and dig into my past. She said, come see a man. It's him. It's Jesus. I ask you this morning, what part of your flesh are you struggling with? Struggling with impatience? Are you struggling with uncontrollable lusts? Desires for things that either you cannot have or God has not given or that are forbidden? Are you struggling with a desire in your life for something and you don't even know what it is? There's an empty bucket somewhere in you. And the flesh cries out to have it filled with something in this world that can temporarily satisfy but that will leak out just as fast. I submit to you this morning, it isn't a precept, a set of rules or steps. You come to Jesus Christ and you'll forget the thirst was even there. It's in him. It's in his presence. That's what he's given to us. He didn't die on a cross so we could have a New Testament form of Judaism. He didn't raise from the dead so that we could put a list on our refrigerator and try to keep it to the best of our ability. God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, he died so that he could live inside of you and me and that we could know God in the most intimate form possible and that from there he might live through us the life that he has called us to live. And our part is to yield, to enjoy, to fellowship with him, and to live in the freedom of the new covenant. Not the oldness of the letter, but the newness of the spirit. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? He closes out by saying, I thank my God. Through Jesus Christ, my Lord, he's given me the victory. Amen.